All right, brothers and sisters, it is time to open up God's Word together. So I'd encourage you to take out your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, here in just a moment, I'll be beginning in verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, here in just a moment. In your bulletin, you might have noticed the, the title of today's sermon is The Foolishness and Weakness of God. And I've got about 30 minutes here to try to convince you that that's not a blasphemous title. In no way are we suggesting that God is foolish in any way. We are not suggesting that God is weak in any way. And you'll see where this language comes from as we read our text. This is one of the more interesting texts in the Bible, and it ends with one of my absolute favorite verses because of the, the poetic nature of it and the way Paul puts it. But we're talking about foolishness and wisdom today. We're talking about strength and weakness. What the world sees as strength, what the world sees as wisdom, is actually weakness and foolishness. And what the world looks at in God and in Christ and in Christianity, when the world looks at that and sees foolishness, and sees weakness, it's actually strength and wisdom. We're going to see that today and why that is. In uh, the end of June this past year, the end of June just a, a couple months ago, I came up on my one-year anniversary as minister here at Columbia Christian. And as you do the, those things, you, you look back and you, you kind of ask yourself, okay, how things been going? We had an evaluation. The search team and the elders were kind enough to sit down with me and Help me to understand, here's the things that are working, here's the things that aren't working. But you see, in the, uh, in the business world, when you go into an evaluation like that, at least the way I was taught, they, they teach you to do a self-evaluation. And oftentimes your boss wants to know, what is your evaluation of your own performance? And I, the, the idea is that your boss is trying to understand, is, is my employee's vision of themselves lining up with the way I see them? Is their view of their performance anywhere close to what, where, where I think it should be and where I think it has been. And so as you go into one of those yearly evaluations, at least in the business world, oftentimes you have to give a self-evaluation. So I started to think, okay, how would I evaluate myself in the first year? And then I started thinking and I thought, okay, well, in the time that Columbia Christian Church has hired me, attendance has dropped by over half We have no fellowship events whatsoever anymore. Sunday school has been completely canceled almost. Some of our most committed members won't even walk in the door to the building anymore. You know, like, if, if, if I was going by the world's metrics, I would just need to fire myself right now, okay? But I'm here to tell you, there is no other place that I would rather be and there is no other place where I feel like God wants me. Church, church leaders are often tempted to judge the success of the church with the metrics of the world. And the business world has taught us a lot about judging success and about useful metrics on how to judge whether something is a success. But church leaders are often tempted to use those metrics to judge the success of a church, of a ministry. But God gives us a different picture of what true success is. And if we use the wisdom of the world in the church, 
We will often be discouraged. We will often go wrong. But if we use the wisdom and the strength that God defines, then we can be encouraged even in a season like we're in right now. And so let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and you'll get the sense of where this title for this message came from. Starting in verse 18, Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now I want to take you through this passage and hit a couple of the, 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 the more central verses, so to speak, and I want to show you through this passage that what the world sees as foolishness and weakness is actually wisdom and strength. And what the world sees as wisdom and strength is actually foolishness and weakness. Look at verse 18 with me first. Verse 18, let's reread it. Verse 18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Now, one of the first times I read that verse, I was really confused. Because as a Christian, I'm reading that we are being saved. Did you see that? It says we are being saved. And if you're in Christ today, if you're a Christian, you might be reading that and thinking, wait a second, aren't I already saved? Wasn't I saved when I put my faith in Jesus and I submitted to baptism? Aren't I already saved? Why does it say I'm being saved? That used to trip me up, and I don't want it to trip you up. One of the, the greatest preachers and authors of our time is a man by the name of John Stott, who used to minister in England. John Stott once wrote, and he's exactly right, that in Scripture, in the New Testament, there are three tenses of salvation. Okay? little grammar English lesson here. Three tenses of salvation in the New Testament. You can find all three. Right? First, we have been saved from the guilt of sin. That's kind of the one I was just referring to. We have been saved from the guilt of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And we will be saved from the wrath of God. Three tenses of salvation. Right? We, we have been saved from the guilt of sin. If you're in Christ today, you're no longer guilty before God. You've been reconciled to God. Your sin debt has been canceled. You have been saved already if you're in Christ, from the guilt of sin. That's past tense. Future tense is also true. You find future tense in, in the New Testament. Paul will say things like, we are going to be saved on the day of judgment. On that day, we will be saved from the wrath of God. Right? So, past tense saved, future tense saved, but it's this present, continual, being saved tense that Paul mentions here. We're being saved 
from the power of sin. If you're a Christian, God is continually working in you so that the power of sin becomes less and less the longer you walk with Christ. You see, when you, when you become a Christian, it's not as if sin's power and temptation just go away completely. That's not what happens. When you come to Christ, you still have a sinful nature that's pulling on you. You still have what the Bible calls your flesh pulling at you to get you to sin and to live in sin. Even though you have a, a, a spiritual nature, even though the Holy Spirit is pulling you this way, your flesh is pulling you this way. But over time, if you walk with Christ year after year after year, over time the power of sin becomes less and less. And you become more strengthened against it, against the temptations of the world and your flesh and Satan. And so in that way, we are being saved, right? We're being saved from the power of sin as we go along and walk with Christ, as we are sanctified, as we, come, we become more and more like Jesus as the years go by. And so I didn't want that to trip you up because it used to trip, trip me up. We're being saved, he says there in verse 18. But also from verse 18 we see that the world will always see Christianity as foolishness. That's part of what verse 18 is saying. The world will always see Christianity as foolishness. Scripture tells us to expect Christianity to be ridiculed. Expect the world to see it as foolishness. Jesus told us to expect this. Peter, in his first letter, says, don't be surprised when this happens. 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter says, don't be surprised. This is what you should expect, brothers and sisters. You should expect Christianity to be ridiculed. You should expect to be ridiculed as a Christian. To be seen as foolish and weak. For decades now, in Bible Belt America, being a Christian has gotten you a certain level of respect in the community. Right? For decades now, in places like where we live, being a Christian, even in the community among non-Christians, has gotten you a certain level of respect and honor. That's a God-fearing person. We respect that guy or that lady. But we are starting to reach a point where that is no longer the case. And it's actually been that way for a long time in more progressive and metropolitan areas of our country. More and more, being a Christian is likely to get you labeled a bigot, arrogant, closed-minded, ignorant, we might say foolish. The world says Christianity is for foolish people. The Bible is for those who don't have their eyes open to what's going on around them. The Bible is for people who can't think for themselves. Brothers and sisters, this is what we should expect. Do not be surprised. How many times do you see a story in the news or, or do you see a situation happen in our country where Christianity is being persecuted or a Christian is being reviled 
And when that happens, and Christians see it, inevitably someone always pipes up and says something like, well, if that were a Muslim, there would be outrage. Or if that were a Hindu person, people would be going crazy. Or the, the media would be all over this. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you, of course they would. Of course. Don't be surprised at that. This makes complete sense. Think about Satan. Think about what Satan wants to do. Satan is not going to waste his time working against false religions that escort people comfortably to hell. That's where he wants people. He's not going to waste his time on that. Satan is going to spend his time attacking the one way people can actually be saved. The one way people actually can get to God. That's what he's going to spend his time on. And so we shouldn't be surprised that those things happen. We shouldn't be surprised when Christianity is treated unfairly compared to other religions or other people groups. We shouldn't be surprised when Christianity is attacked and other religions are not. That's exactly what we should expect to happen if Christianity is the truth. If this is the only way to salvation and to God, Satan's not going to waste his time attacking false religions that escort people comfortably to hell. That's where he wants them. And so do not be surprised. For a very long time, America has been an anomaly in the way that Christians are treated. For a very long time, our country has been the exception, not the rule to how Christians are treated. Christians have been treated very well for decades in this country, but that has not been the case throughout most of history in most places in the world. America has been the exception. And so no matter how much we defend Christianity with apologetics, no matter how much we try to get people to respect Christianity in the public square, it will always be foolishness to those who are perishing. That's what we see here in verse 18. It will always be attacked. It will always be ridiculed. Brothers and sisters, this is what we signed up for. This is what we signed up for. When you became a Christian, you did not sign up for a life that gains you respect and gains you comfort. No, if you read your Bibles, when you become a Christian, you, you sign up for a life that gets you ridicule, for a life that gets you persecution. For a life that brings suffering, take up your cross daily. So do not let it surprise you and don't waste your time being outraged that the world is doing exactly what Jesus and Paul said it would do. Don't waste your time being outraged at that. In Revelation 13.10, we read what, what I think is actually the theme verse for the entire book of Revelation and a great theme verse for the entire Bible. But in Revelation 13.10, it says, Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And that's the way I feel about this topic and this passage. This is a call for faithful, patient endurance, brothers and sisters. Hold on to Jesus. Don't let anything in this world convince you to give up your eternal reward. Hold on to Jesus until the day where we can finally rest in Him. This is a call for patient endurance and faith among the saints. Now I also want you to see verse 21. Let's read verse 21 again in our text. Verse 21 is a very important verse here in this passage. It says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, it's kind of hard to get your mind wrapped around that verse. Let me read the first 
the first little phrase one more time. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. What's Paul saying there? He's saying you can't know God through wisdom. You can only know God through faith. You can't know God through wisdom. You can only know God through faith. The wisdom of the world will not get you to God. How many civilizations in history have seen wisdom and knowledge as a sort of ladder by which they might reach up to the highest heights? How many civilizations in human history have been like this? Wisdom and knowledge is a way to get up to God. It's a, a ladder to climb wisdom and knowledge. Our, our culture is no different. For example, in, in 2018, the man that many considered to be the smartest human being alive passed away. His name was Stephen Hawking. You guys remember him? Stephen Hawking? Many considered him to be the smartest man alive until he passed away. He was a theoretical physicist. He was a cosmologist a celebrated author and thinker, and I'm here to tell you none of us could hang in a conversation with Stephen Hawking. But he was also an atheist. Stephen Hawking, Hawking believed that there was no God. God did not exist. Now, what does it say about wisdom that the man that we proclaimed as the smartest man alive missed the most obvious truth in the whole universe? Now, this is, this is not an opportunity to start feeling superior to anyone. I'm just saying, what does it say about wisdom? That someone could be the smartest man alive, proclaimed by most of the world, and yet miss the most obvious truth in the whole universe. How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. Paul told us how it happens. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. You cannot come to God by wisdom. It has to be by faith. By faith. Now this is not a blind faith. This is not an ignorant faith. When we say you have to come to God by faith, we are not saying you stick your, your fingers in your ears and close your eyes and go la 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 and pretend like the truth of the world does not exist. No. But God is actually what makes the most sense out of the truth of the world. Faith is seeing with spiritual sight. Faith is having the eyes for the very first time to see the world the way it truly is amidst all of the, the, the opinions and all of the, the things that are conflicting with one another that say this is fact and this is fact and this is fact and this is fact. Faith is the, having the eyes to see the way the world it truly is for the very first time. It's spiritual sight. It's not blind. It's, it's being cured of blindness. That's what faith is. You cannot come to God by wisdom. It must be by faith. And I pray that we could all see the foolishness of the world's wisdom and the wisdom of what they consider foolishness. But we also see from verse 21 that to come to Christ, you must be willing to be considered foolish and weak. If you want to come to Jesus, if you want to come to Christ and be reconciled to God, you have to be willing for people to look at you and consider you foolish and weak. Are you willing to take that on? Are you willing for your non-Christian friends and acquaintances and co-workers and family members to think you are foolish, to think you are weak? 
The world will think about you like that if you give your life to Jesus and you live for Him and you take up your cross every day. Think about God's followers in the Bible. They thought Noah was foolish and weak. Who is this guy building a giant boat in the middle of dry land? He looked foolish. He looked weak. But what is true wisdom? They thought David was foolish and weak. You mean this little kid is the one who's going to fight that nine-foot monster that even our strongest and most skilled soldiers won't fight? This, this little boy, this little weak guy, he can't even wear an adult suit of armor. How foolish do you have to be to think you can do this? They thought he foolish and weak. They thought Paul was foolish and weak. Paul was ridiculed and made fun of as he proclaimed the gospel in public. Even some of his own churches that he wrote to in the New Testament say that, oh, when you write to us, you're powerful, but when you come in person, you seem not very impressive, kind of weak. And when Jesus was on the cross, they called him foolish and weak. You, you said you were the king of the Jews? Look at you now. How foolish was everything you said during your life? You think you're so strong and mighty? Why don't you come down off of that cross and show us all who you really are? Why don't you come down off of that cross and show us your authority? And if they called Jesus foolish and weak, we should expect nothing less. You are not above your teacher. Matthew 10, 24-25, these are the words of Jesus. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, which was a word that they used as a nickname for Satan back then, if they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Brothers and sisters, we are not above our master. If you're going to take up your cross and follow Jesus, this is what you signed up for. You expect to be made fun of, to be ridiculed, to be considered foolish and weak, just like our Master, just like our Lord Jesus. If you want to be saved, you must embrace what the world considers foolishness and weakness. Are you willing to give up your respectability among the world, among your friends, at work, among your family members? Are you willing to be considered a fool for Christ's sake? When Jesus returns and calls you to account, will you be among those who look at Him and say, I thought all this Christianity stuff was just for fools, for dumb people, for weak people. Will that be us when Jesus calls us to account? On Judgment Day, who will look ignorant and who will look wise? On that day. Look at verse 20 with me. Verse 20 in our text. It says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Of this age. You might be considered wise in this age, but God has no age. An age to God is like the passing of a minute. You might be considered wise in this age, but this age is as nothing to God. God has no age. The world says this all the time right now. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. 
Get on the cultural bandwagon. Culture is moving this way. Get on. Because if you don't, you're going to be left behind and on, on the wrong side of history. Your ancestors are going to look back on you after you pass away. And you're going to be on the wrong side of history. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Brothers and sisters, you know what's more important than that? Being on the right side of eternity. Eternity. Doesn't matter what today, people today consider the right side of history. That won't matter at judgment day. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Either you do it willingly before that day or He will make you do it on that day. On that day there won't be a single person in the world who is happy that everybody thought they were smart during their lifetime. Are you willing to be thought a fool for a lifetime if it means being in paradise for all eternity? Are you willing to be thought a fool and a weakling for a lifetime if it means being in paradise with Christ, with God, for all eternity? Listen to Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus says, will find it. For what will, a pro- what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? That's, that's really the key of everything we're talking about right here. What will it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Ultimately, what good will that be? No good at all. It won't be worth it at all if you gain the whole world while you're here and you lose your very soul for eternity. Now finally, I want to draw your attention to verse 25 as we close. Verse 25. Again, 25 is kind of the the capstone to this whole text. It's where we get the title of the message. Verse 25, Paul says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Or your, your NIV might say, The foolishness of God is wiser than men's wisdom. Right? And when he says foolishness there, he is in no way trying to suggest that God is foolish. That's not what he's saying. It's like, it's like something in air quotes. Right? It's like he's using air quotes. The, the quote-unquote foolishness of God is wiser than anything we've ever come up with. The quote-unquote weakness of God, God's not weak. God's never been weak. Not even just a little bit. But the quote-unquote weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Stronger than the strongest strength we've ever had on this earth. Right? What God is, the world considers foolish and weak. But that's real power. That's real wisdom. What the world sees as foolishness is actually wiser than everything the world has ever known. What the world sees as weakness is actually stronger than everything the world has ever known. And we see it all at the cross. At the end of verse 24, he says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We see it in Christ. At the cross, we see true wisdom and true power. At the cross, we see true wisdom. God, in His ultimate wisdom, in His genius, figured out a way to both punish sins and forgive sinners and not compromise His justice. He figured out a way to do this. God figured out a way to punish my sins and to forgive me 
so that I would not have to suffer for those sins. He figured out a way to do both and not compromise his own justice or his own integrity, you might say. This is true wisdom. At the cross, God displays the ultimate wisdom. He is the ultimate genius for figuring this out. No one could have ever thought this up. We see true wisdom at the cross, but we also see true power. The cross is where you see true power. Those guys at the cross, those soldiers, were screaming at Jesus. If you're really powerful, if you're really strong, come down off that cross. That's not strength. That's not power. What power is, is staying on the cross. True power is when Jesus stayed. When he refused to come down. Because he was suffering for the sins of the entire world. He was suffering the full measure of the wrath of God. And he took it. He endured it. None of us have that kind of power. None of us have that kind of strength. None of us could have taken the weight of that. You cannot imagine, I cannot imagine, the agony that Jesus was in when He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because forget about the nails. Forget about the the physical suffering. God was pouring out the full measure of His wrath for sin on Jesus. And Jesus was taking it. That's power. And he refused to come down. If he had come down, it would have all been over. If he had come down, Satan would have won. He could have come down. He could have shown those guys right in front of us, right in front of him, who he really was. He could have created the greatest display of authority anyone had ever seen. But what did he do? He stayed on the cross. That's true power. The power to withstand the full measure of God's wrath. The New Testament often calls it the cup. The cup of God's wrath poured out full force onto Jesus until the time when He cried, it is finished. And when Jesus says it's finished right there, He means He's he's done suffering. He's taken it. He's taken all of it. He's taken everything that God had to dish out. And He withstood it. And then He died. He gave up His Spirit and He died. That is true power. And so at the cross, we see, in Christ we see, true wisdom and true power. The world will always look at it and say that is foolishness. That is weakness. But we know better. It's power. It's wisdom. You only see that in Christ. I pray that our world could see with spiritual sight what real wisdom and real power actually is. And perhaps this morning you're seeing it for the first time. Will you give in to it? Will you let Him take over your life? Will you take that step and be willing to be considered by the world foolish and weak? Let's pray. God, what more can we say but thank You? Thank You for the ultimate display of wisdom and power. Thank You for helping us to see it. Thank You for opening up the eyes of our hearts so that we could see what is unseen. We could see what before we only saw as weakness and foolishness. God, I pray that You would open up more hearts to see it. I pray that You would use us to help others see 
what true wisdom is, what true power is. God, help us never to, to feel superior because you have brought us to see it, but help us only to, to desire that more could come and find what we have found. Thank you so much for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for bearing what you did on the cross, for refusing to come down. We give you praise and honor this morning. God, thank you so much for what you have done for us and what you have allowed us to see. Thank you for your servant Paul writing these words to us, these words of power and wisdom. And thank you for your spirit driving them into our hearts and helping us to understand. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.